Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Charles Augustus Briggs was the son of a barrel maker. He was born in New York City, January 15, 1841. He graduated initially from the University of Virginia, and during a college revival, he was converted and decided to enter Presbyterian ministry. He did uh, a stint in the Army uh, when President Abraham Lincoln made a call for volunteers, and he ended up becoming one of the first generation of Americans to receive an advanced degree in Germany. This is where a new scientific mode of teaching was arising, and Briggs worked to develop a scientific approach to biblical scholarship. He was aggressively liberal um, early on and had a belief system that went contrary to what many people during the time period um, believed. There was a paper that was published early on in his career uh, which talked about verbal plenary uh, inspiration. It was published by colleagues of his. And it talked about how the Bible was 100% inspired every single word. After a while, he began to publicly speak against this notion and found several places that he thought the Bible actually gave incorrect information. Uh, he began to publish material and give speeches contrary to the belief that was being purported about, about the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, after a while, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church had asked him to uh, recant those things that he had been teaching. Uh, he refused and was later defrocked and excommunicated. Uh, his position as a leader in the church was taken away and he was expelled from the church in 1893. Charles Augustus Briggs is the focus of our discussion today. How can one remain true to one's scholarship and remain true to one's faith when it seems that they contradict? Let's get ready for this next episode of Leading by History. All right. Uh, well, um, right now we've got a, a special guest with us today, Dr. Michael Brown. It's uh, definitely a pleasure to have you here. And we've got uh, a really significant show for today. Um, and we're going to have a, a great discussion to help our listeners. Um, here on Leading by History, we, we attempt to further the knowledge of, of historical uh, figures and events, as well as uh, talk about, you know, education and leadership, etc. So today, you know, our key person in history is going to be uh, Charles Augustus Briggs. And uh, Charles Augustus Briggs was a Presbyterian uh, minister at the turn of the 20th century who was actually defrocked and was uh, sat down from his position of leadership in the Presbyterian Church because he uh, had a problem with what's called verbal plenary uh, inspiration. Now, 
Leading by History is not a religious show. Uh, it's a scholarly vehicle, but uh, I think today's topic is going to be very important uh, for us to really understand the foundation of, of, of scholarship. Uh, Ma- Michael, are you uh, familiar with, with uh, Charles Briggs? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, as one in Old Testament and Hebrew scholarship, I'm familiar with his, his work for sure. So he was, he was a respected uh, critical commentator and scholar, but obviously had, had changed some of his views over the course of his own studies. And that's what we're going to get to today. So uh, before we get into the meat of the subject, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, etc.? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a conservative Jewish home on Long Island, uh, born in 1955. And uh, we weren't very religious. I was religious enough to be bar mitzvahed at the age of 13. But I got very much caught up in the counterculture of the 60s, the whole rock music and drug scene. And then at the age of Uh, 16 in 1971, I had a radical conversion. And my dad was happy to see me off drugs, but now I believed in Jesus. And he said, look, we're Jews. We don't believe this. So he introduced me to the local rabbi. The local rabbi in turn befriended me, but began to challenge me and said, look, you don't even know Hebrew. How can you tell us what to believe? So that led me to do serious study in, in college. I majored in Hebrew, then got a master's and PhD in Near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University. So that became something of, of real interest to me. To uh, I studied all with secular scholars. I didn't study with anyone who believed the way that I believed. And it, it challenged me on every front. Uh, is this just some kind of fundamentalist myth that I'm holding to? Uh, uh, are my beliefs in harmony with sound scholarship. And and it's an environment that I willingly put myself in because I felt if the things I believe are true, then they can withstand serious scrutiny and scholarship for sure. So that sort of uh, uh, leads into the question I was going to ask about what started you on your path to scholarship. What what made you choose, and, and you touched a little bit, but what really made you choose Semitic language scholarship, ancient Near Eastern language, as opposed to maybe going for a theological degree or something like that, what caused you to, to choose to go this way? So here's what happened. When I first came to faith, I was reading the Bible in English, and I was in high school and spending hours a day reading the Bible, memorizing scripture verses. And whoever I would talk to in my school or, or someone from some religious cult that would come knocking on my door, I could overwhelm them with my knowledge of the Bible. I used to memorize 20 verses a day. And then I'm, I'm 18 years old, and I'm quoting passages from the Old Testament. We call the Old Testament in Hebrew. And they pull out their Hebrew Bibles, and they say, that's a terrible translation. They said, that's not what the text means. No, the New Testament misquoted it, misrepresented it. And suddenly, I felt like a, a little child, like a first grader, just barely learning to read or something, sitting there with these men who've been uh, reading Hebrew since they, they were children themselves. So I felt, okay, I, for integrity's sake, I have to learn the language for myself, but not just that, I want to learn it well enough that I don't have to rely on what a commentary says or even a dictionary says. I want to be able to assess it for myself. So the more I got into the studies, the more I saw that to do serious study of the Hebrew Bible, you needed to learn the surrounding culture, you needed to learn the surrounding languages, and then you could really study the Hebrew Bible in its ancient cultural context And that's why I went in that direction. So for me, it was important to start everything with study 
of the biblical text and from there to go to theology and from there to go to religious debate as opposed to here's my system, here's what I believe, now I'm going to try to derive it from the Bible. That can be very dangerous. So that's what got me into study of the Semitic languages so that I could best understand Hebrew. So uh, that's been that's been my heart ever since. Start with Scripture and go from there. So, Michael, what would be your definition of scholarship? What is scholarship? Well, boy, that's that's a great question and a broad question. Scholarship would be serious academic study of any given subject. That there's a level that we would refer to as scholarship, where you you have the proper tools where you have done the homework, where you have become a specialist within a certain field. And on that level, you can engage in scholarly work. Now, there are people that do scholarly work that are not trained in formal academics. They're autodidacts. They are able to to learn and acquire information for themselves. But you must get to some level of of specialization where you've really mastered something or come to serious understanding of it based on using the best available tools. And and that's why uh, it's not done in a vacuum. That's why views are challenged, because when they're challenged, then then bad scholarship, bad work is, is exposed. And a lot of times we'd rather just cling to our, our, our little secure beliefs rather than allow things to be scrutinized by, by serious scholarship. So again, uh, ideally, Scholarship would be dispassionate. Scholarship would not be based on presuppositions. It would be based on following the evidence where it leads. That doesn't always happen. But to me, true scholarship has to be based on following the evidence where it leads. So what does it take for one to become a scholar? What are are the steps? Well, you have to focus on a subject or a few subjects. You can't be a scholar in everything. Just by definition, that's not possible. And then you need to apply yourself to really serious study over a period of years. That's the other thing. You're not going to become a scholar overnight, no matter how brilliant you are. So you've you've got to uh, hone in on a subject or a couple of subjects that you're really going to dig into. You're now going to get the tools of the trade. You're going to find out who are the top scholars in this field already. What's the top literature? What are the key subjects and questions? My next question would be for you, what would you consider pseudo-scholarship and what are the clear indicators of that? Yeah, pseudo-scholarship is where people have an appearance of knowing the subject, where they have the appearance of being scholars, but in reality, it's a sham. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. Mm. Uh, what would some of the signs be that, that the, the arguments are superficial in nature? that once you poke through them, there's no substance to them. Or for every true statement that's offered, a false statement is offered, or, or, or one false statement every two or three true statements. Or they, mm. uh, they use outdated literature because they're not up to date in their scholarship. Or they, mm. uh, they claim to be experts, and when you press a little deeper, you find that they, they are giving false credentials. Uh, or they rely on, you know, internet myths and, and broad, exaggerated statements. I mean, these, these are some of the many, many symptoms of pseudo-scholarship. Uh, what's happened, though, is in the past, if you were going to disseminate your views, let's say you'd write a book, 
Well, if it was pseudo-scholarship, it would be hard to find a legitimate publisher to put it out. So you'd have to get some fringe kind of publisher, and then anyone in the know would recognize immediately that that's a work of pseudo-scholarship. And in many cases, you don't have the, the necessary academic credentials. When you see where this person has credentials, it's unrelated to the, the academic work they're, they're purporting to do. But uh, right. what's happened now because of internet is everybody can claim expertise. And let's, let's say you claim to be an expert in the history of, of uh, Mandarin Chinese. I don't know anything about it. You get on internet, you're, you got all these Chinese texts up there and you're saying stuff that sounds like Chinese and someone watches it and thinks that's amazing. And, and there's a plague of misinformation because of internet because anybody can get their viewpoint out. Those are very good points because, you know, uh, the, the, the pseudo scholarship has, has really gone through the roof now that people have access to things that they never would have had access to before. So now people can, as you say, they can pull up ancient texts, manuscripts, um, you know, uh, ancient sculptures, et cetera, et cetera, and have never been to the place or the locations where archeologists or, or actual scholars would have gone to really get the firsthand view. And you could put anything up, you know, in a PowerPoint, you can make it look good. And if you had the gift of speech, people who don't know any better and don't understand you know, reasoning, they don't understand vetting, uh, proof texting, uh, critical analysis, then they just accept it for what it is because the person sounds intelligent, they sound good, like they know what's going on. And if you really don't understand how to dissect it, then you can be led astray thinking that you're following somebody that's a scholar. Uh, but then you come to find out that's not even a real uh, a title that they have. So that that's very popular today. So anyway, I want to get to the meat. I, you know, you went to uh, w w secular universities, right? You went to uh, Queens College, and New York University. Schools? Yep. OK. And so, you know, here you here you went to uh, a secular schooling. I went to it's a secular school, but it was founded. Uh, I went to Lincoln University. It was founded as the Ash, which was a religious school and morphed into like most of your universities, you know, your Harvard's, uh, et cetera. They start off as religious institutions and over time they change. But, you know, um, then w when I went into graduate school, I went to a religious school, you know, and so I, I went to uh, Liberty University, which was, you know, completely a, a, a opposite flip from where I was ideologically, um, you know, and, and philosophically. And I chose that for a reason, because, you know, I had concepts and ideas about history that I felt that a far right wing conservative school uh, w w would be adverse to. And so if my scholarship was true and it could hold up in that kind of environment, then I knew I had something. And uh, but but you, on the other hand, went to secular universities and uh, in turn b began a career that was everything but secular. So I, I want to find out from you, how can scholars of faith who have received degrees from secular universities engage scholarship, which intrudes into their realm of faith with fidelity, sincerity, and, 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 and in a truthful manner, even when it challenges what they believe. Yeah. So I, I initially only went to college to honor my parents because they really wanted me to go to college, especially my dad. And I didn't know what I, I was going to start studying Hebrew from day one, but I didn't know what I would major in and really lost interest in everything else 
and just wanted to focus on the languages. And, and, and then I began to see that a lot of Old Testament scholars had degrees in Semitic languages, but most of them would do theology first and then do the Semitics after. For me, it was just all the language scholarship. But, but and, and let me also say that a number of my professors were quite hostile to my beliefs, uh, some in college, uh, some in grad school. And because of that, it, it constantly challenged me. And I felt I, I, the same as you, let's see if their arguments hold water. In other words, I, I am going to look at each argument as if it could have validity because the person bringing it knows more than I know about the subject. And it, it challenged me. It was difficult. It's, it's not uh, for everybody to go that path. But for me, it was tremendously strengthening. So it, my lifelong attitude has been pursue the truth wherever it leads. Be totally honest in the sight of God and, and do your work honestly and, and in the fear of God. And, and therefore, uh, let your biases be exposed if you have them. Let your blind spots be mm. exposed. So to me, I, I can now apply that in, in every area of research that I do. So for me, in every area of life now, it's heart and mind. It's truth and faith. I don't live with a separation where I have to turn my mind off to engage my heart or turn my heart off to engage my mind. So that means I can easily go from academics to theology, from faith to practice, that, that it all goes hand in hand. There was a time when I knew what I believe very strongly, but I didn't have the academics behind it. And, and then as I really tried to follow the evidence wherever it led, I, I questioned certain things that I believed because I wanted to be sincere and, and have integrity. But the end results were the finding it's all in harmony uh, because what I believe is based on truth. And over the years, I've had to make some minor adjustments things that I've believed in to, but the fundamentals have only been strengthened. And, and that's what I think we have to let everyone know. If, if you're humble and sincere and will work hard, you never have to fear the truth. You never have to fear a crisis you're going to go through because of the truth. And therefore, uh, I don't have to worry about where it goes. So at what point does the scholar end and the believer begin? In a, in a religious paradigm? I, I would say that the scholar is there looking in great detail at the things that the believer holds to. You hold to certain doctrine. You hold to certain perspective. You hold to certain worldview. Now the scholar is going to scrutinize that. The scholar is going to say, is this accurate? Are you treating the text correctly? Are your deductions fair and, and right? And then... At a certain point, the scholar goes back to the believer when you run into the inscrutable, when you run into things for which you have no earthly answers, but you still determine to trust God because A, he's been trustworthy up to now, and B, your scholarship has affirmed the trustworthiness of what you believe. So uh, on the one hand, you're doing it all as one person, but on the other hand, for example, if I am talking to a Jewish person about what I believe, I'm doing that as a believer, but undergirded by the scholarly work I've done. So there's a sense in which things are circular. For me, I started as a believer. 
In other words, I didn't start by examining all the texts and coming to conclusions because of which I came to faith. I started as a believer. And then when I was challenged, I became a scholar. And then as a scholar, it undergirded the things I believe. And it's, it's, it's a constant cycle in that respect, except it just becomes harmonious in one's own life. And, and it's all going to be at different levels. In other words, the more we learn, the, the better base that we have. But this is going to happen just on a very simple level where someone holds to certain beliefs and a friend at school says, I, I don't think that's right. Well, now you go and dig a little bit and you, you do your little research and, and okay, well, what I believe is good. And, and you keep going on a, on a deeper level so that when you're following truth, the scholarship reinforces what you believe and you, your believing then is built on the new scholarship. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful cyclical uh, or circular uh, cycle that we go through. Can you give any real life examples of people that you've seen? And you don't have to say names, but do you have any examples of people that have actually lost their faith, no matter the religion? but have lost their faith due to scholarly pursuits and learning. It happens all the time. Uh, absolutely. Um, in fact, it's, it's a very common thing that someone goes uh, to seminary, say, and it could be a Jewish seminary, Christian seminary. They go there and they start off with these great visions. They're, they're going to serve the poor. They're going to be a missionary. They're going to do all these different things. And, uh, and then they get caught up in the academics, and then they encounter objections they didn't have before. They, they run, you know, here's a brilliant professor who seems to know so much more than they know. They're away at university. They're away at seminary. They get hit with, with objections. They get hit with things they never knew before. And next thing, they, they question. Uh, either they become uh, more liberal, less conservative, less taking the text as authoritative, or in some cases lose faith altogether. Uh, it's, it's very, very common. In fact, even in, in good seminaries, sometimes there is this, this academic pride that you have. There's this notion that uh, I have to be sophisticated. I have to show the world that my faith is real, and therefore I can't hold to these old religious dogmas. They're outdated. Uh, the top scholars don't believe them. And that's what you're told. No one, nobody believes this stuff. This is not your little church or your little group there, your synagogue. Nobody really believes this stuff. And then suddenly you go, well, am I believing lies? You now go through this crisis where everything you've held dear begins to crumble in front of your eyes. You go talk to your religious leader and either the religious leader gives you a very trite answer the religious leader says, well, no, 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 that, that, we don't ask those questions. And mm. the right response is when someone comes to me with questions about, say, the inspiration of the Bible or something they were taught to believe but now question it, I tell them, that's a great question. That is a really good question. Let's take a look at it together. Let's dig a little deeper. And when you can have people that do that, that have that security, that are confident in the truth of what they believe, that don't mind questions and critical scrutiny, right there, you've immensely helped someone. And, and I know, uh, I'm not scientifically trained, but I know there are brilliant scientists with multiple advanced degrees from the top universities in the world 
that believe things similar to what I believe. So the fact that they're out there and that they can get involved in the scholarly debate, just the fact that they're out there means the world to me. I now feel confident in that area. So that's a role that we can play for others to say, we welcome investigation. We welcome honest questions. Our faith has withstood tests for, for millennia. It's going to stand tests in the years ahead. So bring the questions on and let's pursue honest answers together. It's very different than someone who has, say, a, a mocking kind of attitude and, and is, is a cynic and is not looking for truth. But people who are sincere, mm. great, you encourage them. Great questions, excellent. Let's pursue them together. And then when they see that this, this, this mountain of objections is really not that formidable, and maybe that professor didn't tell the whole story, suddenly it changes the dynamic. So in, in our final part of our conversation, I want you to just weigh in on Charles Augustus Briggs. H how could he have, have handled things a little bit differently? You know, he had this issue with what he read in Matthew 27 and 9, where, you know, Jeremiah is considered uh, the writer, but we know that the, the, the actual quote is from Tanakh in the book of Zechariah. And, and, and so when he's responding to the information that was put out uh, by scholars of his day, so when Briggs sees that the quote in Matthew 27 and 9 references Jeremiah as the writer, even though we know it's in Zechariah, you know, he goes on to, to um, give a response to the writers of his day, the scholars of his day, who had put forth this idea of verbal plenary inspiration. He immediately, and I, this was A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, who was one of the writers of that position, he immediately uh, uh, began to, to go against that because he said right there is a clear example of a mistake. And, and when he begins to teach verbal plenary inspiration, a, quote, ghost of modern evangelicalism used to frighten children. And that's the statement right there that was like the straw that, that broke the camel's back proverbially and they, and they defrocked him. You know, weigh in on, on Briggs in our final moments. How could he have handled things differently as a scholar? What do you think? It's interesting. When I was writing in my series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, I was challenged by that, that very same text. Uh, when I came to it and, and, and wanted to deal with it honestly. And what I found was the more I dug, the more was going on behind the scenes and that Matthew had a reason for referring to, to Jeremiah, even though the main text came from Zechariah, that there was something more he wanted us to see. And what I would say first is if I found the text to be reliable over a period of many, many years, that one objection shouldn't change that. That's one thing. A second thing is, were the early church leaders idiots? W were they so ignorant? <laughs> did Matthew spend so many years working on his gospel? Uh, did the other scribes not notice this? Why didn't they all try to change it? There are very few scribal variations on this. Only a few say Zechariah. Why didn't they try to change it? And did they believe that what they were passing on was literally God's word. When the New Testament writers quoted from the old, did they literally believe they were quoting God's words? And, and the early scribes passing these things on, how did they feel about them? Well, the answers are clear, they, they really did. The way modern evangelicals may have phrased things, they may use words and concepts a little different 
than the biblical writers would have. But the fact is, it was the same idea. This is scripture. This is the mouth of the Lord. This, this is God's word. It cannot be broken. So perhaps a little more humility on the part of Briggs would yield a different result. And then often mm. when I, I just say, read something sympathetically. I don't care if I'm reading the Quran, if I'm reading some uh, sayings of, of the Buddha, or if I'm reading the text that I believe to be inspired. I'm going to try to read them all the same way, meaning be equally fair. I'm not going to dismiss one thing out of hand because I don't like it and then twist myself into a pretzel to defend what I like. So all I need to do is find an adequate explanation without turning my brain off. That's the big thing. If, if I can do that, then I'm satisfied. If I have to constantly twist myself into a pretzel to justify what I believe, then I have a problem. But if I find adequate explanations and things that I can work with, wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm at home. I have integrity and heart and mind, and I can rest, go to sleep at night in total peace. If I had to, if I had to twist things, if I had to be illegitimate with scholarship, I would live. I, I couldn't live with myself. And that's why you, you're going to give the benefit of the doubt, but you're not going to turn off your brain. And so in closing, Mike, you've touched on a lot of things today about scholarship, maintaining fidelity and being a scholar, but at the same time, not turning off one's personal beliefs. And I think there are a lot of our listeners that are scholars in training in, uh, you know, EDD or PhD programs, and they're concerned about the fact that, you know, they have some religious beliefs of whatever religion they're in, they're concerned that what they're going to learn is going to make them have to unlearn what they believe or make them challenge that to the degree in which they'll have to walk away from it. Or there's some people who actually think that they've outgrown their religious system because they know so much more that they didn't know before. So in closing, Mike, uh, what would you say to um, the, the young person who is attempting to go into scholarship, regardless of whether it's uh, a religious pursuit, Near Eastern language, or whether it's going to be uh, a study of Egyptology or educational leadership, whatever the case may be, what would you say to the, the young man or woman that wants to be a scholar uh, as far as how they should go about that and what, what some of the pitfalls should, uh, may be that they should look out for? Yeah, well, one thing is stay humble, that uh, just because you, you know a little bit more than someone else doesn't make you a better person or a more spiritual person. Many times the people of simple faith have great and profound insight into human nature and, and human life. So stay humble. And then when confronted with ideas that challenge you, be open, but pursue honest answers. It could well be that the things you believe are true and the person attacking what you believe is limited in their perspective. And remember that many scholars and professors bring their own bias to the table. It's not all dispassionate. Some do have an ax to grind. What you wanna do is take time don't make a rash decision to throw out something that has been very important and sacred to you over the years. And then seek out people who hold to views similar to you, but who have academic training in this field and see if they can give viable, solid responses. So weigh the evidence on all sides and don't be so quick 
to throw out your worldview or beliefs that have been fundamental to you for many years. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. I honor that you continue to push through with us so that our listeners could get this information. Well, uh, listen, I really appreciate you, your heart, who you are, what you do. So uh, that was one motive to stay with it. The other is I think we just became part of the world's most edited podcast in history. (laughs) (laughs) So we set a record. I'm always competitive. We set a record. That is correct. Thanks so much, Mike. And, um, you know, make sure everyone out there that you check out uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, His website is askdrbrown.org and also lineoffire.org. Correct. All right. And uh, go and check him out and be challenged. And we thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode of Leading by History. Have a good one. Uh, You too. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast. And we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace. Peace.